The topic for tonight is the joy of renunciation. Or as a subtitle, so many ways to practice letting go. The Buddha was quite famous during his day. In fact, he had um, disciples who were very wealthy merchants, who were the kings and the queens of his time. And he, he had disciples actually of every social strata, from poor, poor farmers and um, cattle herders and um, shepherds and potters to the very wealthiest of the class. He had won the devotion of so many people. Had the Buddha wanted to live in luxury, it would have been no problem. He would have been able to experience whatever degree of comfort that he wanted. But he had left comforts behind when he left the princely life of his childhood to undertake um, a spiritual practice. And even though as he grew older and it became more and more difficult simply to endure the pains, of, I mean, to, um, uh, to live in the forest, he always maintained the renunciate life. He never chose sort of the soft, comfortable approach. And he was asked one time when he was quite old why it was he still chose to live in the forest when surely it would be easier to enjoy life within a monastery. And he said that he chose to live in the forest for two reasons. One, out of, ha- out of compassion for future generations. And two, for happiness. For him, it was a delight to live a very simple life. And it was also important to provide a good example of simplicity and contentment for others. There are important links to consider between the practice of renunciation with detachment, love, and freedom. I want to speak primarily tonight about renunciation, the term that's translated from the Pali into the English renunciation is the term nekama. Kama basically refers to sensual lust, desire and lust, and ne is without. So nekama basically means freedom from sensual lust or being without sensual lust. So renunciation is a practice of freeing the mind from these bonds of lusting after things. So renunciation practice does not require a wholesale rejection of our home, of our work, of our family, of food, of our engagements in the world. It's the intention to release the movement of mind that lusts after things. It is a practice of letting go. Primarily, renunciation is an intention in the mind. In fact, it's one, it's a movement of thought that inspires a movement in action. This thought of renunciation is one, is found in the list as one of the three kinds of right thought in the Noble Eightfold Path. Those three are the thought of renunciation, the thought of loving kindness, and the thought of compassion. These are three specific thoughts that we practice to cultivate and develop. So if you think about 
these three important thoughts of renunciation, compassion, and loving kindness, it's quite striking, actually. The impact on the heart, the freedom of the heart that comes when we have the intention of letting go rather than clinging, is very amazing and very powerful to freeing the mind. There is a discourse in the middle length discourses, number 13, that suggests that we investigate three things to support non-attachment and renunciation. Now, this sutta begins with a scene where, the, where a group of monks visit an encampment of Jain ascetics, and they discuss their various ascetic practices. And the monks are unsure how to reply to what the Jains say, so they return to the Buddha. And this is when the Buddha gives them a teaching on renunciation. Because one of the primary practices involved in renunciation is an inquiry into our relationship to sensual pleasures. The Buddha taught that we should know the gratification, the danger, and the escape in the case of sensory pleasures actually in the case of any sensory experience. And he taught these monks to know the gratification as gratification, the danger as danger, and the escape as escape, so that we are mindful of these three aspects of pleasant experience. So knowing the gratification as gratification, what's this? This implies being attentive to the pleasurable response whenever we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and think something. So not only do we notice that a thought has arisen, a fantasy that pulls us into a world of our dreams, but we notice the pleasurable aspect of it. We notice that feeling. We notice how the mind feels this sense of gratification. We look at the sunset and we not only notice the colors and the sinking, we not only notice that it's beautiful, but we notice the pleasurable gratification that we experience when we're looking at the sunset. So we're mindful and aware of this response to pleasant experience. But the instruction doesn't end there. It's not just mindful of the response. When we're mindful of a pleasant experience, even being finely attuned to the subtleties of the pleasant experience and appreciative without like trying to keep it, but just appreciating it, that's still not the end of the teaching. This is knowing the gratification as gratification, but the Buddha then said to know the danger as the danger. Sometimes when we're involved in appreciating something, we may not be aware of the danger, and yet we may be mindful of this sense of gratification. So what is the danger in things? Well, one of the most pervasive, although subtle, dangers is simply that things change. Whatever it is that we are enjoying is not going to last. And if we try to seek and sustain contact with pleasant experiences, it requires a tremendous amount of physical and mental resources. Just think about how much you work to maintain a comfortable home. 
that's part of the danger of gain, gaining those comforts is the incredible amount of, of time, effort, pain, suffering, the, what we invest in the experience. So there's sort of a material aspect to this, but there's also just the simple insight into that things change. And if we are attached to them, we will suffer when they decay, when we lose them, when they break, when they're lost, when they end. Now, the illustration that's given in the discourse is, um, it's probably not the best illustration for a contemporary audience, but you get the idea pretty graphically. And in this, um, a, a woman is desired by a heterosexual monk. And he's instructed to observe, to imagine, in imagining the danger of this, to imagine her growing old, her teeth falling out, her flesh um, get thinning and then dying and then rotting and imagining the stench of a corpse. Now, it's really not such a great example, but whatever it is that we desire, that we think will, are, is gratifying us now, it is subject to decay, to change, to loss. And when that change occurs, if our happiness to whatever degree our happiness was involved or attached to that thing, that's, then that will be the cause of our suffering. So we may not like so much this example of the corpse decaying, but we can think about it. We might put a lot into our homes. We might have beautiful furnishings, have many treasured objects. We might redecorate and remodel the place. And then it's vulnerable to fire, to flood. It could burn down. We might have very close relationships with people that we love, but our loved ones will die. We might have very fine cars, but cars break down. We might um, see beautiful things, but they change. A beautiful sunset lasts, what, three or four minutes? Delicious meals, if we leave them out on the table too long, spoil and stink. This is seeing the danger. So what's the escape? The escape is not avoiding all pleasant experiences. The escape is abandoning the desire and lust for things that change, including pleasurable ones. The escape is really not that rejection, wholesale rejection of pleasant things. And this is really important to emphasize because many people don't want to practice renunciation because they think it means they have to give up everything good in their life. The great joy comes when we realize we start by practicing and letting go of the desire and lust for things. And then when we realize when the mind is not preoccupied by desire and lust, our happiness is not dependent upon having any particular good things in our lives. So should they fail? Should they break? Should they uh, disappear? Should they die? It's not... Um, uh, the um, devastating, it doesn't have the devastating effect as when we are attached to them.
This is vital to understand because it points out where the problem is. That the problem is with the clinging, with the attachment, with the desiring, the lusting after. So we first investigate this process of gratification, danger, and escape. We bring our mindfulness to understand our relationship to pleasant experiences. And then we release any of this desire that we experience and discover in our own minds. So when we look into our relationship to pleasure, we see the danger and we know the escape. Because in seeing the danger, we see, we, we, in seeing the gratification, we, and then we, we see where the problem is, where the attachment is. In seeing the danger, we recognize how vulnerable we are. And so the escape of release becomes quite obvious. This practice asks us not just to notice an in-breath and an out-breath, not just to calm the mind, but to be, become aware of every movement in mind so that we are aware of our relationship to things. We are aware when desire has arisen. It's our enchantment with the objects of desire that keep us from seeing the dangers and perceiving their limitations. It keeps us from having a deep insight into impermanence, into change. It keeps us from seeing the dukkha or unsatisfactoriness of things. It keeps us from seeing the emptiness of things. This blindness to the dangers or unrecognized impermanence prevents us from having a wise relationship to the things and experiences we have in life. So that when we are, when we expand our mindfulness to include the gratification, danger, and escape, we begin to have a relationship to things, including pleasant things, that creates no additional suffering. It's a relationship to things that is free of desire and lust. It's a relationship based on renunciation, on this thought of letting go. This is part of the experience of detachment. Detachment, again, doesn't mean that we don't have experience. It means we are not attached to whatever experiences occur. It is in this non-attachment that it is possible to truly open, deeply accept, and profoundly love our experience. This is when we experience a moment of ease and freedom, when we're not grasping after things that change. Whenever we find the mind grasping after things that change, we're in conflict, we're divided. It's not the experience of love, ease, or freedom. So disenchantment is another word for escape. And it's an experience of profound balance. Enchantment and fascination is clinging. It's attachment. It's a way of relating to things that perpetuate suffering by continuing to want pleasure. Some people compare um, a person 
who seeks pleasure, who grasps after pleasure, grasps after desires, grasps after every whimsical thought and enchanting um, thing that comes through the mind, to be like a dog that runs after every stick that is thrown. We can become very busy chasing after sticks. Oh, this beautiful sight. Oh, this beautiful sound. Oh, this intriguing thought. This lurching forward to the next pleasant experience. Oh, this great meditative experience. In this kind of a movement, the mind knows no rest. It knows no ease. And this is compared with, rather than being like a dog, to be like a lion who simply sits. And if a stick is thrown, doesn't seek that desired object but looks at what threw it, follows the root, follows the thought to its source, explores the gratification, danger, and escape. I'd like to read just a little verse um, from the discourses. This is from the Samyutta Nikaya at Savati. Bhikkhus, before my enlightenment, while I was still an not when I was not yet fully enlightened, it occurred to me, what is the gratification, what is the danger, and what is the escape in the case of the I? What is the gratification, what is the danger, and what is the escape in the case of the ear? What is the gratification? Then it goes on with the case of the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind. Then it occurred to me, the pleasure and joy that arise in dependence on the I, this is the gratification in the I. That the eye is impermanent, suffering, and subject to change. This is the danger in the eye. The removal and the abandonment of desire and lust for the eye. This is the escape from the eye. So it's a very, that's just a a summary of the way that the Buddha articulated, or the the discourses um, record the articulation of this teaching of the gratification, the danger, and the escape. I like to speak about pleasant experiences because I think it's very easy for you to work with pain. You know, pain, everybody has it, everybody wants to work with pain. But often it takes meditators a long time to realize the power of bringing attention to pleasure. Because pleasant feelings so easily seduce us if we don't recognize the danger and investigate our relationship to them. Sometimes we just transfer our desire for pleasant foods and smells and tastes and touches to pleasant meditative experiences, to pleasant mind states. But we can experience pleasant encounters with clarity and with equanimity. The question is, are we clinging them? Are we trying to hold on to them? Does our, com- do, does our happiness rest upon getting comfort? Are we building up a sense of being somebody who has pleasant experiences? So meditative investigation invites us to look deeper and to explore our relationship to pleasant things. Not to just look at the pleasant things, but to look at our relationship to pleasure and to look at desiring itself. So it's worth remembering that renunciation doesn't automatically occur with mindfulness. Through mindfulness, we recognize and identify the desire 
we find the problem, so to speak. But renunciation is a more dynamic force, and it resolves to cut through the unwholesome tendencies of desiring and of clinging and of attachment. Renunciation is very active. It doesn't just passively watch the same tendency again and again. Once we identify the desire, once we identify the craving, the clinging, the attachment, and we understand how suffering depends upon this attachment, then we use and employ other aspects of the path, such as renunciation or the practice of generosity or the practice of our precepts and ethical commitments, We do something about the obstacles, so to speak. We learn how to free the mind from the obstacles, not just to note them or to recognize them, but to free the mind from them. The the important key is to find where the problem lies. And just to give you a hint, it always lies in clinging. In some form or another, clinging is sometimes disguised a little bit. It it kind of morphs into different qualities. But if you want to know where the, the suffering is, find the clinging. That's always where the suffering is. The suffering is not in pleasure. It's the desire and lust for the pleasure. It's not in having a nice house. It's the desire and, and lust. It's the craving for it. It's the attachment to the nice house. The strong habit of mind is to cling pleasant experiences because we somehow think that if we could just hold it longer, we would be happy. But if clinging worked, we'd all be happy. And it doesn't work. That's the problem. Through practice, we train the mind. We train the mind to notice and know what's going on. We train the mind in some stability so it's not compelled to always lurch toward any pleasant experience. We have to give ourselves enough stillness, enough peace, enough stability so that we can notice that movement. If we're always moving on the first impulse, We never get a chance to really investigate it. So we need the stability to to give a perspective to investigate it. We also, in the reverse, I'm speaking primarily about desire tonight, but we work the same way with not wanting, with aversion, so that we're not compelled to always move against things that are unpleasant. But we don't need to cut ourselves off from feeling. Instead, we develop a depth of equanimity and clarity regarding feelings, regarding pleasure in this case. Socrates, um, it's said, lived near a market, and one of the great quotes is that he said once, I love to go to the market and see all the things that I am happy without. Renunciation is not a practice that demands austerity. It doesn't require that we sleep on a bed of nails or that we torture ourselves in any way. It's not a practice that's intended to increase our suffering. Quite the opposite. Renunciation invites us to explore the movements of, of desire with the strong resolve that simply does not go along with the obsessions. 
It's as simple as that. Can we not go along with that, uh, those obsessive desires? The Buddha said bhikkhus, or monks, one who seeks desire in the eye seeks one, sorry, one who seeks delight in the eye seeks delight in suffering. One who seeks delight in suffering, I say, is not freed from suffering. One who seeks delight in the ear, in the nose, in the tongue, in the body, and in the mind seeks delight in suffering. One who seeks delight in suffering, I say, is not freed from suffering. One who does not seek delight in the eye ear, nose, tongue, body, mind, does not seek delight in suffering. One who does not seek delight in suffering, I say, is freed from suffering. Can you hear this repetition of the seeking delight in? Because I re- that's really a, a, the, the emphasis in working with renunciation, is so often people really think they have to undertake some arduous, austere practice and those can be fun to do because we can then explore and challenge ourselves challenge ourselves and there's nothing wrong with undertaking little renunciation practices here and there but um, the essence of any renunciation practice is to cease this seeking delight in experiences of that change, which means experiencing, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thought objects. These are not the places that we are going to find happiness. The second noble truth tells us very clearly that craving leads to suffering. And in our meditation practice, we may get a hint of that. We may notice it. We may experience it very profoundly and be completely convinced of it. In fact, mindfulness practice very often reveals hindrances and patterns that cause suffering. Yet many of us recognize and see those patterns that are of suffering that are created and perpetuated as habits. But we still rely upon comforts for our happiness. We haven't learned to use the energy of these other practices like renunciation, like generosity, like the ethical precepts to intervene into the habits that are causing suffering. Practices of renunciation ask us to consider very profoundly each time we notice the mind moving towards a pleasant object, we stop and we reflect What does my happiness depend upon? Does my happiness depend upon getting this? Am I willing to even for a moment believe the delusion that I'll be happy when I have this experience or that experience? So we notice what we're attracted to. We notice and then we explore our relationship to pleasure. What happens to the wanting mind when we become aware and mindful of wanting? Have you ever been aware of desire itself? Not so concerned with the object, because frankly, if it wasn't one thing, it would be another. Have you just worked with desire itself and seen, oh, mindful of desire, of craving, of wanting? What happens to the wanting in the light of mindfulness? Very often the mindfulness itself 
diminishes the power of wanting. Sometimes we think we need crazy things to be happy. That's one of the great dangers of credit cards is if we have some whimsical thought that we need something, if we whip out a credit card, the next thing you know, we have it. And we forget that that part of the danger is that the bill is going to come at the end of the month. Remember the gratification, the danger, as well as the escape. Um, Different people are caught by different things. Some people are easily seduced by um, physical objects and like to go shopping and acquire things. Some people are very easily seduced by tastes and by food. Some by sounds and by music. Some by mental habits, even unpleasant ones, of fretting and worrying, of planning, of controlling. Some people are really into their cars and are always out there polishing away or upgrading this or that, or style and appearance in clothing or the way that we present ourselves. Some people are very attached to the validity of their own opinions. The various things that we, be, the things that we become attached to might be intellectual pursuits, they might be artistic, they might be coarse, pleasant experiences. But wouldn't, whatever it is, wouldn't it be simply more peaceful to relate to whatever is happening without attachment? Just to know and experience while it's there? The difference is between attachment and non-attachment. Lusting after or simply knowing the experience of pleasure. Is there suffering or not? Is there going to be suffering when the thing changes or not? Is there a sense of toppling forward into gaining the experience? Or is there a sense of balance? We work in the meditation not just to be mindful of of the simple experience of a hearing or a breath, but to explore our relationship to that experience, to know whether our way of relating to experience is perpetuating suffering, whether it's going to lead to suffering, whether it's based in suffering. Are we cognizant when we are hearing a pleasant sound of the gratification? Are we aware of the danger and do we know the escape? Seeing the danger in sense pleasures and practicing some degree of restraint lets us unhook our sense of happiness from the habitual connection with pleasure and getting what we want. When this assumed link between happiness and sensual pleasure is broken, it's then that the mind is free to explore and know pleasure without attachment. I'd like to see if there's some discussion or questions, and then we'll have a little bit more time for meditation. Any discussion or questions? Has anybody worked with Okay, please. You had mentioned uh, uh, escaping. I got the uh, gratification, and I got the... uh, the danger, but could you go a little bit more back into the escaping and um, 
how one can contemplate or reflect upon it in order to get a, a grip on the escaping? The escaping is very simply the releasing of the gratification, or the, not, the releasing of the attachment. So when we know the gratification, we feel the seduction into, a, into, into an object, a thought, a, a sensation, a taste, a sound, a sight, whatever. We feel that it's not just a pleasant contact, but we're seduced into it. So we feel that gratification. We feel how the, the, the pleasant contact um, um, is, is gratifying this sense of desire, this sense of I and want. So the gratification is creating and supporting and intertwined with I want. So we are intelligent. We notice that. We feel the, the, the pleasure of the contact. But in meditation, we feel also we recognize and we're mindful of wanting. When we're recognizing wanting, wanting is not pleasant. Craving is painful. So we have now an understanding of gratification, but we also have an understanding of the pain of wanting. That sets us off balance, that sets us out of, that keeps us out of alignment with a, a peaceful and easy, clear relationship with just the flow of feeling in life. So we understand that things change. We know that we'll suffer when they change. So there's a reflection there. But there's also that understanding of just the pain itself of craving, of wanting. So when we've, reflect, when we've recognized gratification and we understand the danger, then the mind simply wants to free itself of that pain of craving. We want to free the mind from the danger. And the original seduction, the original desiring and lusting after, seems so, um, what's the word? It's not seductive anymore. It feels more like pain. It feels like something that I don't want. And so the mind, because, it, because we have seen the danger in it, the mind wants to let go. And the part that it lets go isn't the object out there because the object isn't any trouble. Really, when you start to watch the mind, if desire arises, it will pick up any object, whatever is close at hand. For most people, it means whatever is habitual, whatever thoughts come easily to the mind or whatever we tend to like or not like because that habit makes it very available. But if we're in a different situation, the mind that is desiring will desire anything and the mind that is aversive will be aversive to anything. Because once that pattern is triggered, the object is not so important. Certain things tend to, certain objects do tend to trigger certain patterns. But once the pattern has arisen, it will take on whatever object to perpetuate itself. So it's not concerned with letting go of the object per se, although certainly it's fine to renounce the object, to let that go. But that's not the real essence of renunciation. The finding the escape is freeing the mind from the lusting after. And that occurs by understanding and recognizing the danger in attachment. I have a question here in regards to that. See, I'm very much into the tangibles. So I like to go to a place like this that's comfortable, pleasant, the flowers, you know, the statues, 
people that are around me, the essence of the energy. I find that very um, pleasant and gratifying and uh, centering. And it's something that I want Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. it makes me feel um, centered Mm -hmm. in uh, in a way that is, um, I feel in harmony, you know, and it just feels good to be here. And so my question is, you know, I know that too much of anything is, is uh, you know, coffee, sugar, or anything like that, you know, chocolate and all that kind of stuff is not necessarily very good. But, you know, once in a while, I, you know, I cut down on my coffee, so I, I drink more water, but I still enjoy that coffee in the morning. Yeah. This, is, this place is training wheels. This is, this is training wheels. So we try to make it easy. For you, if this place was too austere, you might not want to come back long enough to actually learn how to work with your mind. That's so true. there's a certain degree of of accommodation of the human desire for pleasure. So it's beautiful, and it's very conducive for for quieting the mind. Um, and attention is given to many things, and many volunteers work to make this place very nice. Um, so that's all fine. So it gives you the opportunity then to work with pleasure. Because if the mind is free, it doesn't need to be in a pleasant, a pleasant room to be meditating. And I encourage students to not only meditate in nice, comfortable retreat centers, but to go sit um, in some unpleasant, go sit in the shopping mall. Your meditation, if, if your mind is developed, it won't matter at all whether you're meditating on a bench outside of Macy's or if you're sitting in a meditation center. It won't meditate matter at all. For mindfulness, for equanimity, for peace, for ease. It just will be harder for a beginner to meditate in a shopping mall, you know, to just sit there. But I'm always suggesting to students to choose different situations. You know, buses, trains, travel, airports. Those are convenient because we have waiting time. But to choose challenging situations, to not just not just sit indoors in a nice chair, but to just go for a hike and sit under a tree like the Buddha did. He didn't have he didn't carry along all of the different um, all the gear that we have to make our meditation so comfortable. He just walked and then he just sat. So you can go just take a hike in the hills back here and just at some you know walk and then just sit and see how the mind relates to pleasant and to unpleasant experiences. So I consider retreat centers training grounds that that are the training wheels before we've learned how to ride the bike. And then once you learn about your mind, once you learn how to let go, once you learn your relationship to desire and aversion and develop some balance and equanimity, then you can practice anywhere and you can free the mind in relationship to any conditions. Any other questions? Please. How would you distinguish between truly letting go and avoiding something? Do you have an example in mind? Well, let's 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 say. Um, Let's say you're craving some material object and you don't want that craving. 
How do you know when you're truly letting go of the craving versus avoiding the object? I assume avoiding is is like an aversion as opposed to letting go. Does it feel different physically or mentally? I'm I'm assuming you're using the word avoiding as something that may be not good or assumed to be not good. Well, that's part of my question. I'm not sure how one knows. But avoiding things are fine. There are situations in which the wisest thing to do is to avoid them. There are a lot of things that are well worth avoiding in life. Um, I, I've been teaching a, a sutta study program, and it just happens that this month one of the discourses that we read um, include um, seven ways of freeing the mind from various obstructions. And one of the seven is to avoid them. The Buddha gave seven ways. One is to be mindful and to investigate them. You know, one is to um, is to um, uh, 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 abandon to, to abandon and renounce and let go. You know that that releasing of them, and one is to avoid them. Another one is to use them wisely, without attachment, but to use them use them wisely. Another one is to endure. Different situations require a different response. This is not a monolithic deal one way with all situations. So the question is, is more, what's the situation and how are you responding to it? If you're attending to something, how are you, how are you giving attention to something? If you're attending to something and it's creating more um, negative states, harmful states, then it's wise to find a way of releasing that and some, or, or some, uh, freeing, freeing the mind from it. The kind, and sometimes that means avoiding the situation. The kinds of situations that the Buddha said to avoid are certain physical dangers. Um, cliffs, I think, was in the list. Um, um, stumps, I think that had to do with tripping. Um, uh, there was a whole list of sort of physical dangers. And then there was a list of sort of mental dangers. So it would be unsuitable um, seats, which basically meant for monks to sit alone with a woman. And a contemporary example would be as if you were married and you knew that and there was an attraction to somebody else, but you didn't want to get involved in, in, in in an extramarital affair. You would avoid contact with the person in situations where the two of you were alone together. That would be the intelligent thing to do, and that would be a situation to avoid. If you um, had a, a, a history of alcoholism, you would probably avoid contact or parties where there was a lot of drinking happening. Or you would avoid um, associating with people in bars or in situations in which alcohol was expected and you knew a drink would be put in your hand. That would be the wise thing to do is to avoid it. You don't just go to those situations and decide you're going to renounce alcohol. You avoid the situation. And those were the kinds of things that the Buddha said to actually avoid. Now, there are other things to renounce. What do we renounce? The Buddha said that we renounce unwholesome thoughts. Thoughts of, of attachment, thoughts of desire, thoughts of aggression, thoughts of ill will, thoughts of cruelty. Those, those, uh, those are the thoughts, those are the things that we abandon. 
the renunciation, the abandoning happens very much in relationship to our own minds. So when we feel that lusting after, that's what we let go of. So if we were working, say, with a very practical condition like alcohol, the craving may still arise. So on the external level, we avoid certain situations. But that doesn't mean that the mind is going to be free of it. Craving and desire might still arise. So we work with abandoning the craving and desire and also avoiding the external situation. So I think it's wise to use whatever means is necessary and not to just try to apply um, a, a awareness or mindfulness to all situations because the Buddha really taught a more comprehensive path. Part of why I wanted to talk about renunciation because renunciation energizes mindfulness. Sometimes we'll be seeing desire, 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 and we're noting it, but we're not really getting to the root of it. We haven't investigated to understand our response to gratification. We don't really understand the danger. And so we haven't been able to bring in the um, renunciation that, is, that escapes from it, that frees the mind from it. Um, and yet the Buddha really offered us all of these practices and all of these skills to work with whatever is keeping our minds bound and in suffering. Any last questions, or shall we meditate for the last few minutes? I have one more question. Okay. I just, um, I'm at the point where the renunciation, if you're not clinging to it, but you're enjoying it, and you can enjoy it for a period of time, but not hold on to it, are you practicing that form of uh, escaping? In other words, like, like I try to give an example, like I'm having a cup of coffee in the morning, but I'm not having it in the afternoon, and I'm not having it at night. I'm just having one or two cups in the morning, then drinking water the rest of the day. Is that a form of renunciation? I mean, where I'm enjoying it, at the same time I'm not overdoing it? We could call that a baby step. (laughs) Because I kind of get the feeling that if you didn't have coffee the next morning or the day after that, that there might be a tiny bit of suffering. And that, you know, like mint tea just isn't quite the same. If you're really not attached to that coffee, it would make zero difference to you if it was coffee or chamomile tea that was placed. And, and you, wouldn't be, you wouldn't be engaged in the habit of it always being coffee. It would sometimes be, it would just be whatever happened to be there or water it would make zero difference. So when there happened to be coffee, you might smell it, you might enjoy the taste, you might smell the taste. But if it happened to be chamomile tea, then you also might enjoy that and you might smell that and you might have the taste without the slightest thought of, oh, but it isn't coffee. So start with that, especially if you've, had, if you've been addicted to coffee all day or something. It's a good step is to work it down to once in the morning. Um, but um, there's a lot more of renunciation. <laughs> not to eliminate certain, not to, just to eliminate the coffee, but because there, that, again, is something that it's not evil. It's not like you have to avoid it. 
that isn't something that has to be avoided. Um, but um, but the attachment for it, it just sounds like it's still there. If I substituted it with... Like substitution. <laughs> substitution. Craving is still there. Soy, you know, like chai tea or uh, raspberry yes. red tea yeah, 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 or yeah, green yeah. tea with caffeine. See, that's <laughs> Would that like, be good? It's like the, the smoker who changes from the smoking to the chewing of the gum. It's a better habit, but the pattern, the inner pattern is still there. So on the healthful level, you would want to reduce the external, the degree of of harmfulness of whatever the external objects are. From the subtle meditative level, you want to free yourself from the, um, from the desire itself. Like I said, desire, once it arises, will attach to anything, whether it's soy tea or, um, or coffee. The desire is still there. So you work wherever you are. You know, if you, if you want to start out by just reducing it to the coffee in the morning, then that's fine. But in that, work with the desire whenever the desire arises so that you're also freeing yourself of, lusting, of the lusting after the desiring. Let's have the last few minutes in silence, please. <laughs> 